Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 73 and Psalm 37. We'll be in Psalm 73 initially and most of the time. We're in a series on the Psalms, uh, Psalms that give perspective. The authors of the Psalms go through certain experiences and then they share their experiences, whether it's in their psalms or they write their psalms in the midst of their experiences, and uh, they draw great principles from these experiences. Asap is the author of this psalm. We don't know uh, much about Asap. Uh, he is referred to in First Chronicles. We find out that he was a lead singer, and in time he became uh, the one of the directors of the Jerusalem National Choir. Uh, He has an experience that he describes to us here. And uh, the opening verse tells us of a conviction that he's arrived at as a result of the experience. Verse 1 of Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Here's his conviction. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now you notice here, Israel, he's speaking of the true Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Not every uh, Jew was a true believer, was part of God's Israel. Uh, Not every church member is a part of God's true church today. Uh, So here he's speaking of true believers whether you were a Jew who believed in God uh, and walked with him, or whether you are a Gentile today, whether you're a Jew or Gentile who believes in Jesus Christ. Now, he says that these are pure in heart. Nobody starts off pure in heart. Remember, Jesus said, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, All these things come from within and defile the man. Because of Adam's sin, the whole human race descending from Adam starts off with a sinful heart, sinful nature. And uh, so out of the heart come evil thoughts, fornications, all these things. Jesus said, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. He said, you need a new heart. He talked about the new birth. Except you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You had a physical birth, now you need a spiritual birth, which conveys this new heart. And the Old Testament, God describes that heart like this. He says, I'll take the stony heart out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you a soft heart. And I will write my law on your heart, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and judgments and do them. Now, if you just had that verse to go on, you'd say, well, uh, when you get this new heart, you no longer have the old heart. But you've got to read Scripture in the light of Scripture. And you find out, no, <clears throat> that uh, you do receive a new nature, but you still have your old nature. Uh, but the back of the old is broken. And he puts his Holy Spirit within you and now gives you power to live differently. And so, while you don't become sinless, you do sinless. 
and uh, there's growth here. Uh, so uh, here's this pure heart, the person who had this new birth. A great change has come into their lives. They don't think like they used to think. They don't live like they used to live. They don't live like the generality of the culture around them. They're counter-cultural. Uh, to such, he says, uh, God is good. Now, of course, back in those days, as far as the mechanics of how that happened, God would uh, call someone to faith, work faith in that person's heart through the message of the blood of the Lamb. They were taught back then that if they came and followed God's procedure of offering this Lamb for their sin, uh, then they truly believed in God's promise to forgive them through the Lamb, and they truly were repentant. They acknowledged their sin. They purposed to seek to obey Him, uh, that they would be justified. They'd be forgiven. They'd be cleared. And uh, today we know that that Lamb really represented a person, Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God, and that He was going to die for their sins as the Son of God, and He was going to die for our sins, and that through faith in Him, believing His claim to be the Son of God who died for us, and trusting Him as my approach to God, trusting that He paid for my sins, that I'd be cleared if I surrender my will and repentance, if I trust Him to forgive me as a gift, that I'm one of God's Israel. I have that new heart. So now, uh, <clears throat> he says, surely God is good to Israel, to such as a pure in heart. God is good, only good, never otherwise. He's convinced of that. Now, you got to remember what that good is. That good doesn't mean that we have an easy time of it, no problems. Good is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God desires for you and me, that I'd be more like Jesus Christ. That's not going to happen by me having everything easy. That's going to take some cutting and carving, some time in the fire to remove impurities. That's going to be painful. Surely, though, says the psalmist, he says, I'm convinced that God is good to Israel to such as of a pure heart. Now, he tells us of the experience that brought him to this conclusion. In uh, verse one, he tells, uh, verse two, he tells us how he came into temptation. Uh, verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold spiritually, he says. You remember when we had the ice storm here recently? Our back porch is wood, and then they got these steps that go down to the driveway. I stepped out on those back steps, and I said, Sweetheart, it is really slick. Bam, 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 bam. I mean, I went all the way down. Those, I'm still wearing the scars of that. I lost my foothold. The psalmist said, That almost happened to me spiritually. I... I was slipping spiritually. Ooh, that is really dangerous. Now, he tells us why and how he recovered. Uh, He brings it, here's a statement of the facts out of which this 
almost slipping spring. It's uh, the temptation. The trouble was that he didn't understand God's ways with respect to him. In verse 3, he says, I was envied, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looked around him and he saw wicked, evil, sinful men who prospered. Everything went their way. Not that all wicked men prospered, but some of them did. And that really bothered him. In uh, verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Verse 5, they are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil conceits of their mind know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They, they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Hmm. Now, uh, Charles Spurgeon in a sermon, or in the, his Treasury of David, his commentary on Psalms, says, These men should have been hung in chains instead of they have a gold necklace hanging around their neck. They prosper. And the striking contrast with Asaph himself, with the psalmist, in verse 14, All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. He says, they do wickedly and everything prospers them. I do right. I try to obey you, God, and everything goes wrong. He wrestled with, why do good things happen to evil men and bad things happen to good men? Now, the effect this produced on his mind in verse 13 he said, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. He thought he could figure out God's ways. And when he couldn't, it, it opened the door to temptation. And he began to question the value of walking with God. The value of holiness. What's the point of walking with God if it's going to be like this, he said. Madame Guyon, who was uh, persecuted for her faith, she spent a lot of time in prison. And in her writing, she said, when you first become a Christian, your problem is with your neighbor. And after you've been a Christian a little while, your problem is with yourself. And then as you go along, your problem was with God. She says, in the end, it's God. The more we comprehend God, the more incomprehensible his ways become. Well, that's what he's wrestling with here. Now, we see how he got into this, this slippery slope. How did he get out of it? He tells us. First step, verse 15. 
He considered the consequences of what he was thinking and about to say. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. He he considered the consequences if he verbalized this. He couldn't spare, he couldn't, he couldn't stand the thought of making other people stumble spiritually. He said, if I went around saying this out loud the way I'm thinking, people, I'd be a stumbling block. I would hurt people spiritually. I don't want to do that. Now, that suppressed him seeing it. It made him hold his tongue, which is good. That didn't cure his feeling, but it gave him time to think and to seek God's answer. To use the means God had provided to seek answers. Uh, <clears throat> when you're perplexed, when you're wrestling with something spiritually, find, you know, here you are sliding. Man, see if you can't get a foothold somewhere. Get, get a rung of the ladder. Maybe, maybe everything's gone wrong for you. I mean, painful things have come into your life. Are you convinced of anything? You say, God, I don't even know if there's a God. If there's a God, why is this happening? All right? Look around you. Are you convinced that the human eye didn't happen by accident? Can you believe that? Are you convinced that all the design around you has got to have a designer? That's a good, all right, get a hold of that. Now we can start climbing back up. Are you convinced maybe that that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? There's just too much evidence. I know he rose from the dead. All right, great. Start there. You're convinced, you say, Jesus Christ was God the Son. There's no way, there's no way anybody could invent a character like that. Someone said the things that are attributed to him. Someone said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I know nobody could just make up a character like that. I'm convinced Jesus Christ lived. I'm convinced he was who he claimed to be. Great. Start there. Or maybe you say, I'm convinced that when the Old Testament prophets tell of the coming of Jesus, where he was going to be born, that he would grow up in a certain place, that he would uh, be of a certain family, that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. What would happen to the 30 pieces of silver? Uh, the very day he would die, I'm convinced that, that those men were guided by God. Great. Now you've got a, a handle. Now you can start climbing back up. He, he takes this first step. <clears throat> Uh, and then the second step, verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I went, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He sought God's presence, he used the means that God had provided. Until I went into the sanctuary. What do you do today? You go to church. You get into the Word of God. You, 
you fellowship with Christians, you study this matter together, you pray. The means God has provided when we're struggling with something. He used the means. And as he did so, he found understanding. Then I understood their final destiny. The, the Bible is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. God blew the mist away. He underwent a reorientation in his thinking. Verse 18. Surely, God, you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to run. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Uh, he got the perspective of eternity. He hadn't been looking at all the facts. He said, good night. I was leaving something out. I was leaving the life to come out of this thing. I was restricting myself to this life, a short period of time. No wonder I was confused. Now, hold your place here and look at uh, Psalm 37. And uh, verse 1, where David said this about the same thing that the Asaph was wrestling with. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For, like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Verse 9. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Uh, verse 35. I have seen a wicked and ruthless men, man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil. But he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless, observe the upright. There is a future for the man of peace, but all sinners will be destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. Now, uh, the psalmist gets a handle on what David is saying there as he begins to realize that he's been taking the short-run view. Instead of feeling envious of this prosperous, wicked man, he ought to feel pity. He begins to feel pity. Now, the third step of recovery, verse 20 of Psalm 73. As a dream, when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Further understanding here of the sovereignty of God. God permits evil men to prosper and reign and tread over others now. For a while. Why? Well, for one reason is to show what's in man's heart. Look around you in this world. Look around you in America. Everything you see confirms what the Bible said about man. God said, you want to know what man's like? <laughs> I'm going to just show you. I'll show you what's in man's heart. I'll just let it erupt. That's what's happening. And uh, then to punish sin, Romans 1 says that when men suppress the truth and hold down the truth in unrighteousness, God just lays the reins on their neck and let them go on in sin. He punishes men's sin by letting them go on in sin. It says he gives them over to those sins so that men burn in their lust with other men and women with other men, other women. 
That's what's happening in America. God just said, all right, I'll let you go on in it. I won't restrain it. And God uses that kind of a culture and the hatred of Christianity that makes true Christianity, that makes up that culture, as a way of of, uh, disciplining his own. Tribulation works patience or endurance. And endurance works character, says Romans 5. So Christians being in the midst of that and undergoing the hatred of the world, God will use that to shape them up, to mold them, to conform them to the image of Christ. So God permits it for now, but he will awake. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. God will deal with it. In uh, Genesis 15:15, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan to you and your descendants for an everlasting possession. But your descendants are going to be out of the land for 400 years. And then I'm going to raise up a leader and bring them back in. That was Moses. The reason I'm not giving it to them right now, he says, is the cup of the Amorites is not full yet. The cup of iniquity of the Amorites. A people or an individual, they've got a cup of iniquity. And God lets that cup fill up. It took 400 years for the Amorites. But when it fills up, then God deals with it. He will awake. God gives men time to go on in sin, but then he arises. There's an old story I've told it many times about the country church that's located out near a farm. And this farmer, whose farm was across there, he didn't believe in God and ridiculed Christians. and So... Uh, when all the people going to church in the area while he was over there plowing with his tractor. Had a bumper crop one year and got top dollar and went to the preacher. I said, Preacher, did you hear about my crop? Yeah, I heard you had a good crop. Got top dollar. Preacher, how do you explain that? I don't go to church. And uh, all these folks that went to church, they didn't have a bumper crop like I did. I had this bumper crop. Now, if there's a God who blesses his people and all that, how do you explain that? Preacher said, well, God doesn't always balance his books in the month of October. God always balances his books. He doesn't always balance them in the month of October. Now, eternal punishment will be all the more terrible in contrast with the former prosperity that those wicked experience. Now, we see how he came into temptation. We see how he got out of it. Notice how he profited by this whole experience. He's taught how weak and foolish he is in himself. If he doesn't take advantage of God's direction and God's word and the means God has provided. In verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. How stupid I was, he says. I can't believe I was so stupid. He's shocked at how he'd slipped into a pagan way of thinking. 
And when we walk by sight and not by faith, that's what happens to us. He acknowledges that his standing in grace depended only upon the Lord by whose sustaining power he had been kept. Verse 23, and I'm always with you, you hold me by my right hand. Why hadn't he slipped and fallen and lost his faith and given up his walk with God? He said, you held me, you kept me, and you're always with me. His faith and hope for God in times to come have been confirmed in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. That's my destiny. That's the benefit of walking with you. You're always with me. You'll guide me. And one day you'll take me to be with yourself. And... uh, His affection and his confidence have been settled on God. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, forever. Everyone seeks something for their portion. And now Asaph says, you're my portion, and I'm satisfied. I'm content. You know, we need to live every day with eternity's values in view. Realize uh, the non-Christian may have everything but God, and he's got nothing. And you may not have anything but God, and you've got everything. We sang a little earlier, <clears throat> My father is rich in houses and land. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Uh, It says, of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold, his coffers are full. He has riches untold. I once was an outcast, a stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, an alien by birth. But I've been adopted, my name's written down, the heir to a mansion, a robe, and a crown. A tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still I may sing, Oh, glory to God, I'm the child of a king. Sing that every day. Every morning when you wake up, sing that song. And when you see the wicked prosper, sing that song to yourself. Walk by faith. Now the psalmist is confirmed in that. He's got a handle on it. His resolve is to draw nearer to God. Verse 27. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. That's what he's doing. He's telling of God's deeds as he writes this song. Those who are far from God, their situation, they will perish. All of us are either near or far in that sense. We need to draw nearer. And his unhappiness. You know, we think our happiness depends on having certain things. His unhappiness was due to not keeping near to God. And when he drew near to God, his happiness was there. Uh, The message message is esteem the reproach of Christ 
greater riches than anything the world can offer. His determination there to draw near to God, that's the one thing that matters. How do you do that? He went into the sanctuary. He used the means God had provided. We, we have the church. We have the people of God. We have the word of God. We have prayer. Use the means. Just get back to the basics. Do the basics. Obey. Share your faith. These kind of things. Well, let's go back to verse 1, his conclusion. In verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. To have that pure heart has a great change come into your life. You don't think like you used to think. You don't have the same set of values. You have different goals. The conviction, God is good to such as a pure heart, only good. He's causing all things, even the painful things, to walk together, work together for my good. You have that conviction. And uh, can you say with that psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing but you. Is your heart fixed on him? Is he your portion? A commitment to draw near and live near to God. Maybe you're slipping. Where are you? Maybe you're slipping. It may not be the same thing that caused him to slip. You're slipping over something else. But you're slipping. That's dangerous. Where can you get a foothold? What can you grab to? Start climbing back. Use those means. Augustine, commenting on this, said, When did his foot start slipping except when his heart wasn't right? Let's have prayer. As our hearts are bowed, uh, where are you? Have you got that cleansed heart? Have you ever really surrendered your will to Jesus Christ and put your trust in Him to cleanse and change you? Do you have that conviction that all things work together for good, that He is good to Israel? Do you have that commitment to draw near to Him? Is it something that's hindering you from being near Him? that you need to deal with, it's a slippery banana peel. What would he have you to do? Tell him you understand and you will do it. If you've never made that initial commitment where you've got the pure heart, but you want that, you want that new nature, you want him living within you by his spirit, you're willing to have a master, Pray in your heart right now. Lord Jesus, I want you as my portion. Come, give me that pure heart. Cleanse me. I surrender to you as my master, and I trust you as my Savior. Amen.